Everyone, my name's Chris. I don't know everybody that's here. We have some friends of Tommy that are with us. We're really glad you guys are here tonight and this weekend. Um, looking forward to getting to know uh, you guys a little bit as well. Uh, both Steve and I are the pastors here at Trinity, and uh, we're just glad to be able to have this, uh, this weekend together. Really glad to be able to have Mike with us. Um, you can read his bio. It's on page three in your, in your handouts. Um, I'll just want to make one quick mention one quick thing about the handout. The last sentence mentions that uh, Mike and his wife Barb have served churches in Virginia, Indiana, and Florida, and they're currently in Memphis. Um, So I just want you to notice two things about that. Number one, you don't see Minnesota listed there. And number two, you do see Indiana listed there. So some of you saw my email from this afternoon, but I want to tell you a quick story um, of how Mike has actually connections not just with me, but also with our church here at Trinity. Um, it was, we figured out maybe 1983 or 1984, and I recognize a lot of you probably weren't even born at that point, um, but uh, 1983, 1984, Trinity was looking to call its first pastor, first pastor of the PCA. And somehow, Mike uh, got connected with the search committee of our church. He was down in Florida pastoring a church, and he was ready for what God had for him next. So he started talking with Trinity in the search committee of Trinity about maybe becoming here to be the first pastor of this church. And it didn't work out. The Lord showed that that wasn't the right fit. And so Mike decided, uh, well, I'm just going to go plant a church in Indiana in this little small town called Richmond. Richmond, Indiana is where both Stephanie and I uh, grew up and have our roots. And I had a couple family members that uh, had been prayerfully asking the Lord to bring a church planter to plant a new PCA church in Richmond. And Mike came and planted Christ Presbyterian Church, which was the PCA church there in Richmond. And through the ministry of that church, both Stephanie and I really came to know the Lord. And so I don't know whether it's right or even kosher to say this or not, but the way I'm looking at it is that the Lord uh, decided not to send Mike to Minnesota so that he would send him to Indiana to plant a church in Richmond so that Stephanie and I could become Christians and be discipled in the Lord and so that one day I could actually come here and be the pastor of Trinity. Um, Now, that's probably probably pushing it a little bit, but um, Mike has been uh, a deep impact in both my life as well as Stephanie. He married us 30 years ago. Um, (laughs) uh, It was 30 years ago almost exactly uh, last month. And uh, he has just been a, a significant influence both near and afar for me. He is currently, uh, are you honorably retired at this point? Uh, I've been dishonorably discharged. <laughs> <laughs> Call it what you want. <laughs> so he's, he's quote unquote retired as a pastor, but he's still ministering um, at one of our sister congregations in Memphis. It's called Independent Presbyterian Church, and a friend of mine is the senior pastor of that church. Some of you know Sean Lucas's name. Uh, Mike has been on staff pastoring there for a long time, and it just happens to be, it's a little bit bigger than Trinity. I'm guessing, what, maybe three, 4,000 people on a Sunday morning? No. I think we have a couple thousand people on the road. It's 1,800, something like that. But more that are there on Sunday, I'm guessing. No. No. Okay, well, I'm feeling better all the time. <laughs> That's the South. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. Mike, we're glad that you're here. Um, Mike and I have been talking about this weekend for a while, and I've been able to hear what the Lord has been putting on his heart about what uh, he's going to bring to us this weekend. 
Um, and I'm just going to ask you to be praying throughout the weekend for the Lord to be at work in each of our lives through his word and through Mike. So Mike, please come up and preach God's gospel to us. Thanks, Chris. Um, it's great to be here with you guys. Um, I can tell you why it didn't work out for us to come to Rochester. We came uh, in June. I figured out it was June of 84, early June. And um, people still had three layers of clothing on. <laughs> and for my wife, who had spent the previous three and a half years in Florida, Rochester, Minnesota just was not going to happen. <laughs> so you can, uh, you can blame her. But that's... Um, Chris, that's that's just a just a remarkable take on God's providence, you know. Um, so it is. I'm I'm really glad to be here. Um, I should tell you maybe a little bit more about myself, so you know who you're dealing with. Um, I was born in South Bend, Indiana. I grew up in a little town just north of South Bend, Niles, Michigan. Um, I grew up in the shadow of the Golden Dome. Um, it was it was a kind of a family avocation to love to hate Notre Dame. And the best thing that ever happened to Notre Dame was those years in the 60s when Notre Dame actually hired a Presbyterian as their head football coach, Eric Parsegian. Um, Best thing that ever happened to Notre Dame was a Presbyterian. (laughs) So, yeah, there you go. Um, I I grew up in the church in a sense. Um, I started going to church when I was in second or third grade. Our church had hired a new choir director. And I think what he did uh, was uh, to go through the the membership rules. My parents had had me baptized in this church, uh, my sister and me. But my parents didn't attend, but they were on the rolls there. And I think what happened is that this guy uh, sent an invitation to all of the the, the students, all the kids who were on the rolls to come and sing in his choirs. And I I liked singing and um, so started singing in the choirs at the church and did that all the way through high school. Um, But um, unhappily, the church where I grew up, and I think this has probably been the experience maybe of of some of you, uh, the church in which I grew up uh, really had lost the gospel. Um, I I did not hear the gospel in the years uh, that I was attending that church. Now, I understand that there are two ways you can think about that, right? It can be there and you not hear it. That's obviously one way to understand that. Uh, but the other way, sadly, is, is that the gospel just wasn't there. The Jesus that I heard about uh, was a good guy, and the preaching ministry of the church was, was uh, basically, Jesus is a good guy, go be like Jesus. And um, so I tried to. I, I kind of did that. It was the 60s. Some of you remember the 60s. Uh, pretty tumultuous time, but a time in which kids like, like me really wanted to see the world changed, wanted the world to be a different place. Uh, but God in his providence um, 
when I went away to college, uh, really did show me not only the bankruptcy, um, the well-intentioned bankruptcy in many cases, but nevertheless the bankruptcy of human systems, but he also showed me the bankruptcy of my own heart. And it was during my college years that uh, I really did come to understand my sin, my brokenness, um, the reason that there is brokenness in the world, which is something I want to talk a bit about this weekend. Um, and that the solution to my brokenness, my personal brokenness, my personal sin was Jesus. So at age 20, um, I accepted Christ. And um, I mean, honestly, guys, my life was turned upside down or right side up. Maybe that's the, the better way to put it. Um, my call to ministry came shortly after that. Um, I just found myself thinking about people who had grown up in an environment like I did and just felt called to want to help people understand the gospel that I just had never understood. And um, so um, it actually, you know, it's, it's a full-time job changing the world. I don't know if you all have figured that out, but when you're employed full-time, it's hard to go to college and go to class and do all of those things that one is supposed to do. So I flunked out of college, um, but worked my way back through, um, through a couple of years of uh, being in a Christian college, actually, and then ended up at the University of Michigan. Finished at Michigan in 78, 75, went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary near Boston, um, and graduated from Gordon-Conwell in, in 78. My wife and I were married the week after my graduation. Um, and so I went from being a student to being a graduate to being married to being unemployed. Um, but um, was called uh, later that year to a church in, in Northern Virginia. So Barb and I have served churches in, in Virginia, uh, Florida, Indiana, and, and now Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I have three daughters, three married daughters. Uh, oldest daughter is married to a PCA pastor who has planted a church in Oakland, California. Um, our middle daughter lives in Memphis. She uh, is married to a business owner, started his own business. My youngest daughter lives in Chattanooga and um, is married to a, a business owner as well. Um, so as my wife so insightfully uh, pointed out to me several months ago, all three of you guys are self-employed. You know, kind of started your own businesses, church planters, you know, whatever. Um, so that's just a little bit about me. Um, what, do, what do I want to do or what do we want to do this weekend? I, I want for us to think about these verses from Psalm 103, uh, the first few verses that I'll, I'll read for us in just a minute. Um, but maybe some ground rules. I... I mean, I really want for this to be interactive. Um, I, I, I want for you guys to feel the freedom to, to ask questions. There'll, there'll be a little time uh, after each of the sessions for you to do that. But if you want to grab me um, privately, if you want to chat about something, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, I, I want to look, I'm as narcissistic as the next guy, okay? But, um, but I really do want to be here for you guys, want to 
be as much of an encouragement to you as I can, as much of a help as I can. So feel free to to uh, to grab me and uh, if you want to chat uh, privately. And and I'll say this too in the in the Q and A thing. Um, Anything is fair game. I mean, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 103 and, and passages related to it. Um, but anything is fair game. Anything you want to ask about, uh, we can certainly certainly talk about. But I do want to focus um, our attention on these first few verses from Psalm 103. Um, so let me let me read them, and um, and then we'll we'll get started with this. Um, and I'll, I'll just say before I read them that um, I found myself probably a year ago toward the, um, toward the end of the summer and into the fall in Psalm 103 and found myself thinking about these verses, this psalm, reflecting on them, meditating on them, uh, coming back to them. And... Um, I, when Chris asked me to to consider doing this, I, I told him, I said, this is this is kind of where I've been. This is what I've been thinking about. And this is what's been um, really important to me. Um, and um, so we just sort of agreed that we'd take a look at these verses together and give me an opportunity to share some of my thoughts with you. Um, so Psalm 103 Psalm of David, which I think is a a really important thing to keep in mind. David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let me pray for us. Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you that, that every bit of it can be trusted. You've given it to us for our good and and as we look at it for a little bit this evening, we, we recognize that we need for your spirit to come. Um, because, Lord, it is when word and spirit come together that, that, that good things can happen for us. And so please do that. Please grant your spirit. Open our hearts. Incline us to hear, to receive, to believe, to embrace to rest in, uh, and to be comforted by the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are these benefits that the apostle, or that uh, that David um, is referring to here? There are five of them. We're going to end up looking mostly uh, the next couple of days, tonight and tomorrow, at three of them who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. And then Sunday morning, we're going to look at um, these the verses from this psalm and a, and a passage in the New Testament 
where this language of, of steadfast love and mercy and grace, those three terms uh, are used. Um, but for tonight, it's, it's, it's forgiveness. Um, but I want to put off all of these benefits, forgiveness and healing and deliverance and being crowned and being renewed. Uh, I want to put these things in a context. And it's, it's our context. It's, it's the setting in which, which we find ourselves. And it's actually the, the context or the setting in which David finds himself. Um, one of my favorite authors is a fellow named Cornelius Plantinga. And Plantinga um, has written a number of things that I have really enjoyed. Um, but one of them is this book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he begins this with reference uh, by referencing the movie Grand Canyon. Um, and uh, this, is, this is what he writes. In the film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. Then the predictable bonfire of the vanity's nightmare. His expensive car stalls on one of those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Then just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, who is an earnest and genial man, begins to hook up the disabled car. The toughs protest. The truck driver is interrupting their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know this, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. That's not just true there, in that scene, in that setting. That's true, period. Everything is supposed to be different from the way it is. And you know it. You know it deep in your bones. You live in the midst of chaos. You're surrounded by chaos. Sometimes the chaos settles down a little bit. But life is always characterized by chaos. I had a friend recently say to me, it feels like the world is starting to fall apart. I said, no. I mean, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I said the world started to fall apart in Genesis chapter 3. That's when the world started to fall apart. And it's been falling apart ever since. But the chaos isn't just external to us, right? The chaos is internal, isn't it? Stuff 
stuff on the inside can be just as chaotic as stuff on the outside. And I think, I think that's why David writes this psalm, at least in part. And that's why he blesses the Lord because of the chaos in his own life, the chaos in his own soul. I'm pretty convinced that this, this psalm that David has written uh, is a psalm of his maturity, a psalm uh, of his later years, not a psalm of his adolescence or his early adulthood, but a psalm of his later years. Um, and you think about David's life and what was in the rearview mirror for him. Uh, we know some of it. We know some of his story. We know uh, especially the, the, the story of his adultery with Bathsheba, um, the, the lying and the deceit that surrounded that, the, the manipulation, uh, the manipulation of, of Uriah and others whose lives were lost because of David's machinations. Right? Um, David was a disordered soul. And so the question is, where, where do you go for comfort in the midst of chaos? Yeah, the chaos that's out there but the chaos that's in here. We live with it every day. We live with this chaos. We live in a world, as Plantinga puts it, we live in a world that has been vandalized by sin. Vandalized by sin, by our own and by that of others. But David sees these great benefits. He, he begins this this psalm by blessing God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. These benefits are fixed points for David, and he blesses God for each one of them and all five of them together. The, the, the word blessing is an interesting word. It derives from a word that means to bow or to kneel. So the picture that emerges is, is of one who is blessing another. The greater blessing the lesser. The greater blessing the inferior. Um, a picture of this is in Genesis chapter 1 when God blesses the man and the woman after he's created them. He blesses them. He commissions them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. In blessing them, God the Creator is promising and ensuring that they will be enabled to fulfill their calling. He's conferring on them the grace that will enable them to be who they are made to be. Right? So that's the, that's the picture that emerges from the word that's translated here, bless. Bless the Lord of my soul. And the question arises, how can we as creatures bless the one who is the source of all blessing? How can we do that? Well, we can't. But the one thing we can do is acknowledge the wonder of his extraordinary blessings. And that's what David is doing here. Praising him for these extraordinary blessings. And the first of those blessings or benefits is forgiveness. He comes back to it later in the psalm, verses 8 through 12. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. How, 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 how far is that? I mean, I don't, we've got smart people in this room. I know we do. Maybe you can tell me how you measure the distance that there is between the east and the west. I mean, it's a picture that suggests they're completely removed. They're completely gone. Removed as far away as this infinitely large cosmos can take them. And again, I think it's worth, it's worth contemplating that David has in his past not only the deal with, with Bathsheba and Uriah, but who knows how many other things, things that maybe didn't manifest themselves externally, but that were, were pictures or were illustrations or were symptoms of the chaos in his own heart. So why is David so thankful? What does he have in mind as he thinks about his past, his sin? How does it it happen that sin can be removed as far as the east is from the west? I preached a, a sermon years ago with the title, God Does Not Forgive Sins. Yeah, right? Like, really? God does not forgive sins. It raised a few eyebrows. Um, but here's what I meant and, and mean. When the Bible talks about forgiveness, it talks about it in a way that's very different from what we tend to mean. It's no dismissal of charges. It's no sweeping of stuff under the rug. It's no saying... That's okay, boys will be boys, right? You remember what Gerald Ford's first act as president of the United States was, those of you who were around at the time? Gerald Ford's first act as president of the United States was to stop the wheels of investigation into the Watergate scandal and its implications for President Richard Nixon. He pardoned him. He stopped the wheels of investigation and prosecution. The wheels of justice came to a screeching halt in Richard Nixon's case. I remember the mastheads on all of the major print news media, Newsweek, Time, U.S. News and World Report, Ford pardons Nixon. Here's the deal, brothers. God pardons 
nothing. God pardons nothing. And there's a very real sense in which God pardons no one. Sin is law-breaking, right? And it would be an injustice, it would be unrighteousness in God for lawlessness to go without address. Sin must be punished, and God must ensure that that is the case, or his moral perfection is compromised. And David knew that. And how did he know it? He knew it because he knew his Bible. He had a Bible. It wasn't the whole thing. It isn't everything that you and I have. But he had the first five books of the Bible. He had some of the post-first five books, Joshua, Judges. And in those first five books is one of the most remarkable chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 16. And David had Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 describes the Day of Atonement. It describes the how of forgiveness. It's a a rather detailed thing. There's a, a lengthy process that the high priest goes through in Leviticus chapter 16. It begins as the high priest takes a bath, right? Washes himself, cleanses himself. So what's that symbolic of? Before he engages in this in this work of offering sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, the high priest has to wash himself. And then he puts on these, these priestly garments. And after he takes his bath and, and puts on his garments, there is a bull, and then there are two goats. And the bull is sacrificed for him and for his whole family. And that blood from that bull is, is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And then he takes the first of the two goats, and that goat is slain. And the blood of that goat is sprinkled on the furnishings within the temple. What does this all symbolize? It all symbolizes a life given for a life, or a life given for lives. The bull sacrificed for the priest and his whole family. The goat sacrificed for the nation, for the people. A life given for lives. A substitute. And after that, after the bull is sacrificed, after the first goat is sacrificed, then this most remarkable thing happens. And and this is, you know, this is the critical moment in Leviticus 16. And it's arguably the critical moment in Israel's life every year. Because then what happens is that the second goat is taken into the midst of the assembly, out in front where where the whole nation can see what's happening. Let me read Leviticus 16, verses 20 to 22. Verse 20, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar. That's all of that stuff related to the the bull and the the first goat. 
he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So what's happening here is the high priest takes this second goat, as I've said, and places his hands on the head of the goat. If you, if you go back through the first part of Leviticus and you read the first 15 chapters, there are 12 occasions in which someone places his hands on the head of a sacrifice. Twelve occasions. And then you, but nothing is ever said about why it is that the person places his hands on the head of this sacrifice. It's not until you get to Leviticus 16 that you understand what it is that's being pictured. All the way through those first 15 chapters, culminating in Leviticus chapter 16, what you are seeing is the transfer, the transfer of guilt, the transfer of sin from the guilty party to an innocent party. And the high priest does that for the whole nation, with the whole nation in their tents, standing around the tent of God, with the high priest in the midst of them, hands on the head of the goat, confessing the sins of the people, transferring the sins of the people from them to this sacrifice. And then what happens to the goat? Where does the goat go? I I love this. It's such an interesting phrase. Verse, Verse 21. The goat is sent away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. What an interesting thing. Why is he in readiness? I mean, I don't, I don't really know. But it kind of from a, an existential or experiential perspective, the dude is excited. The dude can't wait to tether that goat to himself and lead that goat out into the wilderness. Why? Because the goat is bearing the culpability, the sins, the transgressions, the lawlessness of the people of God out into the wilderness. And what do you expect to have happen to a poor little goat out in the wilderness where there are lions and tigers and bears? Remember the first Jurassic Park film? (laughs) You remember the poor little goat in the cage that became lunch for the T-Rex? Right? What happens to the goat? Brothers... The goat dies in the wilderness, bearing the sins of the people. And did you hear how many times the word all is used? All of their sins, all of their iniquities, all of their transgressions, gone into the wilderness, never to be heard from again. And it's interesting, at the end of this whole thing, the guy who stood in readiness to lead that goat out into the wilderness He takes his clothes off. 
He himself takes a bath before he can come back into the camp. What's that all about? Brothers, it means there's no residue that comes back into the camp. There's nothing left to be judged. Remember, maybe some of you know the name Eric Alexander. Heard Eric Alexander, this Scottish Presbyterian pastor, preach a sermon on Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. And he said in his sermon, when Jesus died on the cross for you, the wrath of God was extinguished. The wrath of God was extinguished. It's gone forever. You sang about this. Did you catch this? I mean, you sang about this tonight. I know this is why Chris picked this hymn. He knew what I was going to talk about. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Sorry, I got lost. Every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. Verse 3, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. You know, the instruction in Leviticus 16 was that this thing was to be rehearsed, repeated every single year. It was supposed to have been done every year, repeated over and over and over and over again. Why? Because the blood of bulls and the blood of goats, Hebrews tells us, is not sufficient to take away sin. All of of Leviticus 16 is doing is pointing us ahead to the coming of Christ, to the cross of Christ, who is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, but actually on on the cross becomes a goat, right? The end of history, when Jesus gathers all of the nations together, he's going to separate what? Sheep and goats and the sheep are invited into eternal blessedness and the goats are ushered in to curse goat is a symbol of guilt and iniquity and transgression and the wrath of God fell upon Jesus for you so that your sin all of it all of it all of it brothers it's gone Now, I don't know what you came in in, in with tonight. I don't know what you carry around in your heart. I don't know what the chaos is in your soul. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you're going to be tomorrow. But this thing I can say to you, 
I can say to you that if you know Jesus Christ tonight, if you are his and he is yours, all of it, everything you've ever done, thought, wanted to think, all of it has been nailed to the cross. Paul says that in Colossians chapter 3. Chapter 2. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Get the picture. Get the imagery. This he set aside. Not sweeping it under the rug. Not saying, bah, boys will be boys. Not saying, try harder tomorrow. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Every accusation that can be made against you has been nailed to the cross. It's all gone. It's all behind you. And that's true not only, as I suggested, of what's in the past or what's going on right now in your heart or what's going to go on in your heart tomorrow. All of it, all of it, Jesus has taken. David saw this. David caught a glimpse of this. David knew Leviticus 16 well enough to know that it was one of the great blessings, one of the great blessings that God, by his grace, gives to his people. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know, I'll tell you, in a world that is chaotic, uh, in a world that does at times feel like it's coming unglued, unraveling, um, with a heart. I mean, I look, don't we know this is true? If you could walk around in the chamber of my heart, chambers of my heart, you'd say, why is that guy up there talking to me about the gospel? And if I could walk around in the chambers of your hearts, just like you with me, you'd wonder if I knew Jesus at all. Right? But all of it, all of it has been nailed to the cross. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for these brothers. Thanks for bringing them here. Um, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. I pray that you drive this stuff into our hearts, that our, that our hearts would be as glad as David's heart was, that our hearts would be as um, filled with wonder and awe and amazement as the hearts of countless tens of millions across the ages of the life of the church. Um, Lord, drive these things into our hearts and grant us liberty and freedom and real joy as you do. In Jesus' name.
Amen. All right, questions, comments? What was the last thing that offered your Cornelius? Colossians 3. Cornelius. Oh, Cornelius, Cornelius Plantinga. P-L-A-N-T-I-N-G-A. One of those good Dutch theologians. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, God doesn't, you know, pardon me, but forgive your sins. Please keep it up. But, uh, yeah, he doesn't. So, how do you see that fitting anyway with uh, Romans 6 6? And, uh, you know, uh, taking our old man and crucifying him. Absolutely. How do, you, how do you see that? Exactly. Exactly that way. Yeah, I, I mean, the one of the great New Testament ideas is this idea of union with Christ, that we are in Christ, united to Christ. Um, you probably know this. Um, over 150 times in Paul's letters, he uses that language, in the beloved, in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. We We talk about having Christ in us which is legitimate. Paul does too. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But way more times does Paul use that language of being in Christ. And that's his way of capturing this idea of being united to Christ. And, and you, you think about all of the ways in which that language is pictured for us. And this is one of them. I don't, I don't get how that works. Right? But Romans chapter 6, I think, underscores... This this idea, I mean, that's a great point. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. I think it's I think that underscores the very thing we're saying here that that, uh, I I mean, it's an it's an it underscores the point I'm making. It's a different way of looking at it. But, yeah, it's the same same idea. I read somewhere that verse is like, you know, Christ is our substitute. Most of us really understand that. But also as our representative. And that sense of uh, Christ died for me, but also I died with him. Died, died in him. And have been raised in him. Right. And, as, and Ephesians 2, we've ascended with him and are seated with him. I, look, you guys are seated right here. I mean, I get that. But, but that idea of union with Christ enables Paul to say things like that. That's, that's how close our identification is with Jesus. And, and actually viewing it from Jesus' perspective, when, when Paul was knocked off his horse in Acts chapter 9, what did Jesus say to Paul? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? So close is Jesus' identification with his people that when, he feels the pain, when, when we feel the pain, he feels the pain. It's, it's beautiful stuff.
Which is which is why. So here's another thing. I didn't work this in. I mean, you just can only do so much, right? But which is which is why? Because all because this stuff is so true. That's why when I screw up, I mean, my my first psychological impulse is to run from Jesus. My first spiritual impulse needs to be to run to Jesus. Jonathan Edwards preached a great sermon on this from Psalm Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now, this is Jonathan Edwards, for those of you who know who Jonathan Edwards is. I mean, he was pretty close to perfect, I think. At least his biographers would say that he is. But he didn't think so. So he, he, he preached, uh, wrote a sermon from Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, that you may be glorified, that you may be exalted, that your name may be held in high regard. Pardon my guilt, because it's great. Right? Well, I, I don't want to run from somebody like that. I want to run to somebody like that when I screw up. Right. Yeah. That's great. Um, my guess is that that person is everybody in this room, myself included. It's easier for me to believe that the gospel is true for you than it is for me to believe the gospel is true for me. So, I mean, that you know, it could be a long conversation, and you're right, 45 years of pastoral ministry, I've, I've had that conversation a lot with myself. <laughs> But, but with parishioners. And I, I, and I don't mean to be simplistic about this, but I, I, I believe that at least a big piece of the solution to that particular malady is to take my eyes off of myself and do the best I can to fix my eyes on Jesus. To do what I think David is doing in Psalm 103. He's fixing his eyes on a God of extraordinary love, extraordinary mercy, extraordinary grace. So I think, and it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think that that's, that's at the center of what helps with that particular soul sickness. Yeah? Um, I don't know, it may have been, I think it was Charles, no, no, it wasn't Charles Simeon. I don't know, one of those, one of those real smart Guys, old, you know, dead pastor guys, said, um, for every look I take at myself, I take ten looks at Christ. And I, I, so that, that's where I would want to go. I would want to help people with. Yeah. Chris? Mike, um, probably every single one of us in this room can't think of particular sins that uh, are very difficult for us to, to lean against and to fight against, things we give into over and over and over again. Uh, sins that Christians three or four hundred years ago would have called besetting sins. How does what we're talking about tonight apply 
Um, it, it, it does. I mean, and I, I think Tommy, I think Tommy's question is those are like cousins or brother and sister or brothers, you know. Um, it's interesting. I um, just was reading. This is a this is another planting a thing. It's called Beyond Doubt. It's a little devotional thing. It's it's they're not long at all. They're they're very provocative. Um, I just read this the other morning, so let me let me share it. Something in you is perversely outrageously at war with what is right. I just think that's a brilliant statement. Something in you wants the evil you do not want. And occasionally this enemy succeeds in melting your firmest resolution as a hot apple Danish melts a lonesome and defenseless pat of butter. Later, the guilty deed done, you sit down for an earnest talk with yourself. Look, self, you say, you were supposed to be done with all that. Why did you do it again? That's not what you really want, and so on. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. And this is the key thing. In his, and he's commenting on Romans 7, 18, and 19. Fallen, fallenness is complete slavery to sin. In that slavery, we don't even want what is right. On the other side, the perfection for which God intends his saints means complete and powerful freedom from sin. Perfect people not only want what is right, they invariably do it. We are, meanwhile, in between. Because of the profound work of Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to God. But we are still learning the ropes, still learning obedience. We are no longer dwellers in the land of great darkness, but we have not yet arrived at the city of God. We are pilgrims. We are on the way. We all live in the tension of being redeemed but not yet perfected. We know the sin in us has met its conqueror. But we also know the conquering will not be complete until for us, as for himself, our Lord says, it is finished. It doesn't mean we give in. It doesn't mean we quit. I, I don't know how to put this exactly. Um, I could get in trouble for this, and I certainly don't want to be misunderstood. But somehow we have to we have to learn to be comfortable in the in between, and and we have to keep doing what I've suggested to Tommy. We, we just have to keep looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. 
And, he, and Philippians 1.6, he will bring to completion what he has started at the day of his own return. Um, I mean, it's tough, Chris. I mean, it, everybody in this room knows exactly what you're talking about. And if, and if there's somebody who doesn't, you need to be up here doing this. And, um, and I'm not saying that we give in. We, we, we pick ourselves up and, we, and we, we, we just, by the grace of God, keep fighting the fight. But let me say this, too. I, I, think, I really think that's why things like this are so important, because we are not supposed to do this thing alone. We are supposed to do it with each other. We're supposed to walk together, love each other, pray for each other, not be embarrassed by each other. I mean, there's this thing in in Hebrews 2. Um, This is what I love about Q&A things. It it just gives me a chance to preach a bunch of sermons I've never been able to preach. Um, For it was, listen to this. I mean, this is so cool. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom, this is Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know we're we're uh, we're ashamed to call each other brothers, but Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, right? It's just it's wonderful. But but anyway, but anyway, the point I'm making is the things like this I think are really important to be with brothers, to pray together, to 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 gather around God's word together, to walk together because we're not supposed to do this alone. Yeah, Bruce. I will probably word this. But anyway, I, I'm getting older. I've been around church and God and the Bible and stuff for a long time. What do you do when you... I can get impatient. I don't like things being repeated sometimes. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, so I'm faced with this. I hear these things and I go, well, I've heard that. I've read that. I've seen that. You know, and right away I'm my mind's going other places. How do you counter that? Good question. (laughs) Come on guys, you're smarter than I am. Help help Bruce. Help me help Bruce. Yeah, David. Bruce. Talking with 
talk to more people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it Joe? Uh, yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um. Welcome to our world, Bruce's and mine. I think one of the things that um, I found lately uh, is I try to remember to uh, the scripture where it says, uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Uh, and there's another one, I don't think it's right there, but it says, um, um, My ways are not, not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Um, and every time I get stuck, or like if I'm blaming my brother for something, and I'm focusing on he he's a Vikings fan or, uh, or whatever, or a Green Bay fan, how to lose? Or an Ohio State fan. But I'm focused on that, I, or you know, or anything that's not at peace and not the fruit of the spirit, I'm noticing God is really trying to tell me something. In a minute. That I put my eyes back on Jesus and don't That's worry great. about the answer, then the answer comes. Because mm-hmm. um, I know that uh, we're just men. So a lot of things I can't answer for nobody else. And a lot of questions I have, trust me, I got a long list when I have, when, you know, when I see the Lord, I'm, hey Lord, you know, what, what happened here on 1982? Uh, I, I don't know. But I know that right now, God is so good to me that I'm even still alive. I still need to be alive. So I don't worry about the details. I just respond with grace. Hmm. I think that's a great, what I hear, Joe, and what you're saying is a note of thankfulness. And I I think that's a a great word. I mean, um, I'm not thankful enough. Bruce, I'm not saying that about you. I'm looking at you, but I just... um, and maybe that's what was so. I, I don't know. Um, you know how you know how you have these. Sometimes it can be a moment. Sometimes it can sort of be an extended thing where it just seems like Jesus is is real. You know, more real maybe than he has been. That's what a, a year or so ago was for me in Psalm 103, and that's why I keep going back to it because I found it to be a place of real refreshment. So. I don't know if I don't know if, if that helps, but but and it makes me thankful, and that's what I hear yeah, in, I in what Joe's saying. I think that's one of the things I, I guess are like, you know, said, bless the Lord on my soul. Like, um, if you're looking at a baseball game, I like a lot of sports analogies. Um, so looking at a baseball game, I can throw, I could be one pitch away from a perfect game. But am I going to pay attention to all those pitches where I got strikes and, and my team dove and made a, mm. you know, a, a catch or whatever and we won the game? Even though I didn't get that perfect game, I still won the game. We still win the game because Christ died on the Amen. cross for us. So, I, I, you know, me trying to figure out all the details and stuff when I know I should be there, when I, I know I'm breathing. Um, hmm. I know I got men around me that love me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to. I have hope, and in having that hope, I, that this is me. I'm not. This is just me. Um, you know, just to be here in this, in this setting. Um, so, you know, bless the Lord on my soul. Thank yeah. you, Jesus. Amen. Bless him. Yeah. Aaron, you had your hand up. I think yeah. it's almost eight thirty. I think we got about a minute. 
Um, yeah, for two. So we, we got plenty of flex here. Okay. Might fumble my words here, but I just wanted to clarify something. You just spoke about the phrase comfortable in between. Um, I think I understand you're saying is that when we're trying to be comfortable in between, we're trying to work against the sin, the chaos within us, but we also have to understand that we are still with that sin, yeah. and we have to be comfortable with that. How do you grow comfortable? Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe it's a maybe it's a, an uncomfortable comfortableness. You know, maybe it's a kind of a dissatisfaction. I mean, I think when I think this will come up in the in the next couple of sessions. Um, what enables me, and I'm, and I'm don't yeah, I know you're not suggesting that I've said this because I haven't, and I don't want to, and I don't want you to be left with any hint of suggestion that I'm suggesting that we be comfortable with our sin because because yeah. that I mean sin is death sin is just death um, and so that's not what I'm suggesting so maybe it is a kind of a, an uncomfortable comfortableness I'm, I'm, I'm and where I was going with this is how how big a deal hope is in the New Testament. Hope is a really big deal in in the New Testament. Not only, I mean, the the death of Christ for me and and the assurance that my sins are forgiven, all my iniquities, all of my iniquities have been laid upon Him, gives me peace. The resurrection of Christ gives me hope. Right, and and I am I do want to talk about that tomorrow, um, brothers. That I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on poor Joel Osteen. Um, for those of you who know who Joel Osteen is, this is not your best life now. Your best life is coming, and it you, we can't even begin. I don't believe we can even begin to imagine what it will be like when everything is put back together, when everything is the way it's supposed to be. But that's the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian is the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things. You know, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men, all the human systems ever devised, could not put Humpty together again. But Jesus can and will right and that that's the new testament hope and that's why that's why christians can be joyful in the midst of chaos because there is a great glorious day coming day of total renewal so maybe that puts that being comfortable thing in a bigger context sure all right it's 8 30 i know you're flexible but any last questions i want to respect the the time. I want a practical question. You said uh, uh, you, you use a book of, of, of meditation. Um, I think that's a help. Yeah. How, 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 how should I go about meditating? Mm-hmm. Just read the Bible. 
Yeah, um, you know, t historically, traditionally, historically, uh, meditation is one of the disciplines of the Christian life, and um, and I think it's a it's an art that we've lost. Um, it's and I, and I am. I mean, one of the great things about my retirement, my part-time retirement, is I have my mornings to myself. I don't have to. I don't have to do breakfast with guys anymore. I don't have to be at meetings. I don't have to do any of that stuff. So I've I've found myself thinking about this quite a lot and failing quite a lot at learning how to you know to meditate. Um, I remember in his book Knowing God, J.I. Packer saying, um, and it was in the preface to the to the book Knowing God. Well, he made the distinction between knowing about God and knowing God in a personal way. I mean, you know, some measure of intimacy developing between God and me. And he mentions meditation. And what he suggests is something like this that every truth learned about God be turned into praise and thanksgiving before God. And, I, so, and that's, that's been helpful to me to say, okay, this isn't just information from my head, which, which we as, for those of you, I don't, I don't know where everybody's from sort of denominationally and theologically and everything else, but let me just, let me just share a family secret with you that we Presbyterian reform types are really good at the notional stuff and we can really stink at the relational stuff with one another and with God. Packer was, a, he was Anglican, but he was theologically reformed and it's always been very helpful to me as a Presbyterian to say, okay, I've just learned something about God or I've just been reminded about something about God. I, I, need, I need to do the work of turning that into praise and thanksgiving before God. That, I think, is some of what meditation can be, to really stop and, and say, thank you, Jesus, and praise him for it. So I don't know if that's helpful. Okay, 8.30. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the questions and your patience and your attentiveness and for being a good bunch of guys.